Take your Bibles and go to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll say first we have at 5.30 this evening in our Family Life Center, we have our monthly church business meeting. And I encourage you to be there, but especially I encourage you to be there because tonight we will distribute, just distribute, we won't discuss it or ask questions or answer questions tonight, but we will distribute the recommended new constitution for our church One of the first things that we started once I got here was uh, I took to the deacons and the deacons formed a committee to review our constitution and bylaws and make recommended revisions. And so the constitution part of that is ready for the church to look at. We will distribute that tonight. Again, no discussion, no questions. uh, And we want you to have a chance to read through it. And then in the coming couple of months, we'll have some listening sessions and question and answer times so that you can be thoroughly aware of what it says and have a chance to voice your suggestions, etc. And then in January and then again February, we'll have the two votes relative to uh, adopt it as constitution or not. So that process begins tonight. I encourage you to be there for that. Colossians chapter 1, uh, and I say to you as you turn there, welcome to the hectic season. Uh, have you had your fill of Christmas crowds yet? Uh, <laughs> I'm taken with this time of the year every year because of the way we have perfected it in the season of goodwill and the lack of same when you get out into the public marketplace. Uh, caused in mind for me the story of the lady who was just totally consumed with the Christmas season she had parties that were, you know, more than she could really get to, and she had uh, presents that she had to buy, and uh, her kids were all, you know, jumped up. And so finally one day she had a party to go to in the evening. She pulled her kids together and said, we've got to go do some shopping. So they went out and braved the crowds and went to find themselves at the end of the day at a department store uh, where the place they needed to get to was on one of the upper floors, And she was just so thoroughly worn out and tired of the whole mess, but she had to get this last present. So she walked her kids over to the elevator, punched the button, and as they waited for the elevator to get to them, she just kind of leaned up against the wall and thought to herself, I'm just going to die. And the door opened, and she and her kids went into a packed elevator. And so as she got them in there and got situated, the doors closed, she turned and faced, you know, nobody faces each other in an elevator. So they all staring, looking at the door. And while she's there and these kids are there and she just finally had it, she uttered these words. I just wish that we could find whoever started this Christmas craze and string them up and shoot them. From the back of the elevator, a voice said, don't bother We already crucified him. The Christmas craze. If you haven't already started it, you'll get your fair share of it soon enough. But in this time of the year, there is a real danger for us. And that is that we miss the essence of what Christmas is all about. Now, I know that Christians are concerned, or at least some Christians are concerned about that happening, because every year, and it seems like there's this growing voice, uh, where Christians come together and we say things like, Jesus is the reason for the season, which sounds good. We also say things like, keep Christ 
in Christmas, which sounds good. But even if that happens to be our position and we join into that growing number of people who stand firm on those two statements during this time of the year when Christ seems to just get pushed out of the mix altogether, there is still a danger for us. I I see this and it alarms me because we get Christians who jump on the bandwagon of Jesus is the reason for the season and keep Christ in Christmas and it seems as if those just become militant voices and still miss the essence of what the season is all about. And we'll stand and we'll fight all day long about keeping Christ in Christmas and having our own particular brand of celebrations in the public square, but we still seem to sometimes miss the essence of what Christmas is all about. Takes me to a church uh, dramatic presentation done by a bunch of children. And in this particular church, these kids did everything when they came to their Christmas program. And they did an activity scene, so they had kids who were shepherds and, you know, kids who were Mary and Joseph. But in this particular church, they also used the children to do all of the uh, logistical stuff, too. So they had kids running the soundboard with a little bit of help and kids running the lights with a little bit of help. Well, that plays out as they get into this thing, and one of the things that that play that they were working on was intended to communicate was the holiness, the divinity of Christ, the baby in the manger. And so the way they did that is they put a light that shone up from underneath the manger. And at one point in the, uh, the drama, they would turn off all the other lights on the stage and in the house lights. And the only light shining would be the one underneath the manger. And it was intended to show the wonder and the glory of the Christ child. And so they came to that critical part of the drama, and when it came time for them to shut off all the lights, the kid panicked and he shut out all of the lights, including the one under the manger. And so then you could hear, you know, the audience as they gasp first, and kids as they start snickering and all of that. And then finally, in the midst of it, while nothing's happening, you hear one of the shepherds in that whispering stage kind of voice as he said, Hey, you shut off Jesus. And I think that becomes a prophetic voice in our day and age for even Christians as we go into the Christmas craze. We just kind of shut Jesus off from the whole process. Now, I know that that's not really how we think we do it, but we get so wrapped up in all of the stuff that it's easy for us to miss the basic. So what I want to do over the next few weeks is to help bring us back to the essence of Christmas. This Christmas baby, what can we say about him? Well, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, Paul picks up as he begins his whole argument in the book, and he picks up in verse 15 by taking an ancient hymn that refers to who Jesus was. Now, not just ancient for us. It wasn't ancient for him. They're still first century Christians. But they had developed this song, this hymn, as a way of pulling over and educating people as to who Jesus really was. And it becomes one of the most packed 
Christological statements in all of the New Testament. And Paul lays out for us who Jesus is. So this time of the year, as we look at this Christmas baby and our thoughts are driven to a baby in a manger, let's stop for a few weeks and look at what we find in the face of that little child. Chapter uh, 1, Colossians, beginning in verse 15, here's what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does Paul think of this little baby in the manger? Well, think of the baby in the manger. That's what I want you to really kind of zero in on at first this morning. Look at how much of our trappings of Christmas are tied to a baby in a manger. Now, I'm not picking at that. I mean, I understand that Christmas is where we celebrate the birth of Christ. My concern is that we don't get locked into a level of thinking that forever keeps Jesus as a little baby in a manger. So what does Paul teach us beyond the uh, away in a manger statement beyond the statements like uh, well what's that hymn that we sing what child is this let me just remind you of some of the words of that what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping and so much of Christendom even just celebrates the birth and the little baby And fails to take into account the Savior dying on a cross. This Christmas baby. What do we find about this? One of my favorite passages of Scripture as it relates to Christmas is kind of obscure. It's Luke chapter 2 verse 19. It follows on the story of the shepherds as they go to Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are there. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 19, it says this, but Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. Let's just stop for a minute. Let's do a little bit of uh, what I call sanctified imagination. What I want you to do is to put yourself as best you can into Mary's place. And you're gathered there beside that manger. The shepherds have come and gone telling their incredible story. And you and Joseph, and you're looking down at the face of this little baby. What are the thoughts that go through your head at that point? You know, all of us, those of us who are parents, all of us have things that we want for our children. Expectations. wonder what Mary's were for that little baby Jesus. What, what was she thinking as she looked at him? My daughter's here with us today. Lauren's over here. And uh, so let me just take you to the time that she was born. 
Now, I, I have to tell you, I was a little bit out of sorts because Teresa was insistent on getting to the hospital. It was in the middle of the night. I was trying to make coffee so that, because I was the one. I mean, she was going to be busy. I was just going to be sitting there. I needed coffee to drink. And she's insistent we got to get to the hospital. She even got my mother involved. My mother showed up to keep our other two, and my mother jumped my case. You get her to the hospital. Okay, okay. It's all about her, isn't it? And we had plenty of time. She delivered, what, an hour after we got to the hospital? We had plenty of time for coffee. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this room. I already had two boys at this point. And here's Lauren, minutes old. Actually, when she was born, as she was being delivered, the doctor jumped back and he said, My goodness, look at that. And I looked over and there was a knot in her umbilical cord. And I said, I didn't have that with my other two kids. Is that normal? He said, absolutely, that's not normal at all. And he came to call her a miracle baby that she even lived through all of that. And is as, well, I mean, she's sort of normal. But uh, <laughs> and so I was reflecting as I looked in her little newborn face what comes of this child will she grow to be the first woman president maybe she'll make her dad proud and grow to be a woman's professional soccer player You know what I did not think as I looked into her little newborn face? I did not think perhaps she could be the first female version of Hitler. I did not think maybe she'll grow to be a serial killer famous in American history. See, we don't think those ways about our newborn children. We think in terms of best case scenario and we put these lofty things on our kids and as we sit there, parents looking in the face of a newborn child, we look at them and think, what could be with this child? What was Mary thinking as she pondered these things in her heart, these shepherds who came in from the field, just common, ordinary, smelly guys from the field? And they're looking at that baby and they're telling a story of how the angels split open the night sky and said, Behold, I bring you great tidings, good news. A Savior is born. And Mary looks and she puts with that piece of information, that piece of information that she had from her own visit with an angel, and the promises attached to that. And then she puts with that uh, Joseph's version of what happened with him and an angel. And she puts all of this together. And she looks into the face of that little baby. What does she think? Clearly she would be thinking, this is the promised Messiah. Let me tell you, that is a huge leap for most people in that day and age. Oh, certainly parents of newborns in that first century uh, not even first century at that point, moving towards that point where all time changed and how we measure it because of the birth of Christ. In that day and age, a Jewish parent would love to think that their child might be the Messiah. 
Mary had it on good evidence that he in fact was. And she thinks forward, I'm sure, about how this baby will turn the fate of her Jewish people and break the boot of the Roman occupation. Oh, he's going to be a good one, this kid. But to think that he, in fact, was God? I'm not sure. Based on the way I read Scripture, I'm not sure that Mary would have put all that together yet. How did she see this baby? It is a significant thing that Scripture says. She treasured all of this stuff. She pondered them in her heart. And in her mind, she must have been thinking, I can't wait to see what this baby does as he grows to be a man. Now we flash forward a few decades. We're back to Colossians 1. And the first thing that Paul lays out for us, oh, it's going to take us weeks to get through this whole statement that I read. But the very first thing that he says is packed with meaning for us. He is the image of the invisible God. We need to understand what we mean by the term image here. Because image for us might not fully capture the Greek term here. There's two different ways they use this as a definition. First of all, they would let it be an artistic representation. What you saw over here was a picture of what happens when somebody accepts Christ. We call it symbolic. Okay, It's a picture. It is a representation by going under the water of dying to sin... And as we come up, we're resurrected to a new life. So that's the picture of baptism. Dead to sin, raised to walk in newness of life. It is an artistic representation if we're using the term image here. It's a symbol of the change that occurs when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, let me give you maybe a little different kind of thing to hang on to with this particular definition. An artistic representation. Teresa and I, a couple of years ago, several years ago now, had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. And while we were in Washington, D.C., I had a conference that I needed to go to, but because of our uh, anniversary that was pretty close to that, we decided that we would make it an anniversary trip, and she would go with me. We went a couple of days early uh, on our own dime, and we did several, you know, the tourist thing in Washington, D.C. I don't know how we ended up at the National Art Gallery, okay? I'm pretty sure it was her idea, all right? Because as a rule, I don't do art, okay? Uh, I just don't. But somehow we ended up there, and, you know, I'm glad that we did. It's given me a good sermon illustration since then. I don't do art, okay? I just, you know, yeah, that's a picture. Okay, great. Somebody did a good job on the frame. That's what I, you know, that's why I look at that stuff. So we go into this National Art Gallery, and you start on one end of it, and the way it's laid out, or at least it was then, I assume it's still that way, is you can trace American history by its epics of time and the artistic stuff of that epic. And so you start over here before the Revolutionary War, and you got paintings of that kind of stuff. Yeah, they're paintings. Okay, good. Let's move on. Uh, and, then, but, and you just kind of work your way through. Now, what I really like, though, is when we got to the part where they have the presidents and their portraits there. Now, I wouldn't have liked that, except we walk into this room, and the first thing I see is a picture of George Washington. And I recognize it. Not because I paid attention in class, but because I had a dollar bill in my pocket that had exactly that same picture on it. I thought, hey, that, hey, that's where they got the picture for the money. 
I'm smart that way. And so I was, I was pulled in. And guess what? They got an Abraham Lincoln picture too. And so I, and I don't know beyond that. I don't have anything other than a five and a one, so I don't know. But I started walking through and these pictures of the presidents. Now, I was as dense as I am. I was still smart enough to know that those weren't the real presidents. They were just pictures of presidents. That's the picture image here. That's the word that is used here. Jesus uses that same word, Matthew chapter 22. You don't have to worry about going there now. It's when they ask him about paying taxes and he says, give me a coin. And they get a coin and what does he ask the people? Whose image is on the coin? It's an artistic representation of a reality. Now, let me ask you this. Let's step back, put on our theological shoes for a minute. And let me ask you, is that what Paul's saying here? That Jesus, that baby in the manger, was an artistic representation of the invisible God? Well, you see, there's, see this is where our humanity kind of gets in the way. Because my answer to that is, well, sort of, but no. So if that's not the best deal, then, by the way, the reason we know it's not the best deal, let me read verse 19 for you. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You catch that? What a huge statement. For in him, that's this baby, all the fullness of God. Let's just put a pause there and try to wrap your mind around that. For in this little baby... All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Does that sound like an artistic representation to you? So there's got to be more to this. So it pushes us to the second definition for this term. This one nails it for us. Image is an embodiment or a living manifestation. Oh, now, see, this gets it. Jesus, this Baby in the manger. Mary looks at him. She ponders these things in her heart. What is she looking at? She is looking at the embodiment of the invisible God. If your brain's not hurting yet, then stay tuned. Because by the time we get through all of what Paul's saying about this little baby, it's going to blow our minds. The embodiment of the invisible God. God in the flesh, in that manger. Let me put it in our terms where we live every day. This Jesus, this baby, is the real deal. He is God. He is God. Now, I've got to tell you, that little truth, it's really easy for us to just read through this passage and just skip right past that, isn't it? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. Wait a minute. Time out. You see, the Jews of Mary and Joseph's time, and that next generation of Jews, the ones that had the disciples and all those others, they had a hard time with this. As a matter of fact, most of them flat out rejected this. 
They couldn't believe, first of all, that he was the Messiah, much less that he was God in the flesh. And they had such a hard time believing that, that they strung him up on a cross. Actually, they nailed him up on a cross as they killed him for making claims that they just couldn't accept. That shouldn't surprise us too much. We can get awfully hard on those guys, but we're surrounded by a culture in America that totally rejects this basic part of Christmas. He is God in the flesh. Why do we celebrate Christmas? It's not because it's a great time for us to celebrate the giving and receiving of gifts. I'm all for that. That's all well and good. But if we ever miss the basic reality, we're talking about God coming flesh on earth. And we can fight all day long. Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, what difference does that make in your life? You see, if he's not God in your life, then you missed the point of Christmas. He came to give a personal relationship that you could never get on your own with a holy God. And people have a hard time with that. Matter of fact, we have church groups who have such a hard time accepting Jesus as the image of the invisible God that they reduce him to being something else. Oh, he's a good man. Oh, he's a great teacher. Oh, he's a prophet. Oh, he's a God, just like there's a bunch of gods with small g out there. You know what the Bible says about that? There's a good theological term for that point of reference. It's baloney. He is God. And yet, the Christmas craze, we get so wrapped up. I got parties to go to. My goodness, I got another party. I'm tired. Yeah. I understand all of that. Just don't miss what it's about. These people with such a hard time accepting him as God in the flesh, the embodiment of the invisible God, they have such a hard time with that that they refuse to really embrace that. You know what that makes them? Lost is what it makes them. For there is given under heaven one name by which you must be saved. What name is that? Jesus Christ. So if you can't accept him as the image of the invisible God, you got no hope. And we're surrounded by people who will give thousands of dollars in gifts in the name of the season. And they're going to go off into eternity to a devil's hell. And Christians by the score, well, you know, it's Christmas. Just need to know that uh, one's unwillingness to accept the truth has no bearing on whether it's true or not. Just because maybe you are not really too sure about this, the fact is it's fact. And your willingness or unwillingness to accept it doesn't change the fact. It just changes you. Let me give you an example of that. 
I'll tell off on myself. I don't think I've told you this before. Uh, I don't mind letting you know what kind of a dunce you called as a pastor. When, uh, when I was just out of high school, I decided not to go to college. I needed to have a job so I could support the lifestyle that I was living. And uh, So I, did, I just went to work in the oil field. And when I did that, it didn't take me too long. Uh, some people said, you know, really... Should, you really should go to college. And so I decided I'd go to college. So I went and signed up for a few classes. Uh, and about that time, I met Teresa. And, oh, man, I'd walk around my tongue hanging out of my mouth all the time. And, you know, it was just... <laughs> so I decided I wanted to live, you know, spend time with her. And so I just started spending more time with her, which meant college became very much an afterthought for everything else in my schedule. So I was working all day long, and then we would do things in the evenings together. And about once every three or four weeks, I'd go to class. <laughs> and I was, like, lost when I'd show up. Computer, computer programming class, I got the computer part. I just never got the programming part of it. <laughs> and so in talking to her, she said, you know, you really should, I think it was her, you really should go drop those classes, otherwise they're going to flunk you. Well, by the way, they don't flunk you. You flunk yourself. That's how that works, okay? And uh, so I said, okay, okay, well, I'll go drop it. So I went to Odessa College, and I walked in. I said, I want to drop these classes. And they said, okay, you need to fill out this form. So they slid the form to me. I filled it out, and I slid it back to them. And they said, okay, now you need to go have your professors sign off on this. And I said, no, I don't. And they said, yes, you do. And I said, no, I don't. It's not the professor's business whether I'm going to drop his class or not. So I don't have to do that. They said, yes, you do. I said, no, I don't. And I slid it back to them and I walked away. Do you know they had the nerve to send me a grade report two months later that said I flunked both of those classes? One's unwillingness to accept the truth has no bearing on the truth. And I had some bad grades in my transcript to prove that. And some people are going to come to the end of this life. It's appointed the man once to die, and after that, the judgment. They will stand in front of a holy God who said, What have you done with my son? And if they say, Well, I didn't really believe in that, they will be condemned to hell. And for us as Christians, this is the hectic season, the Christmas craze. This is also the prime opportunity for us to talk about the embodiment of the invisible God. When all the world is busy with Christmas, where's the Christian voice? Let me just give you one other thing about this passage. I know you're ready for me to be done. Notice what Paul says. All right, let's go to grammar class. One of the classes that I didn't drop, that I thought I dropped, was an English class. I figured it out later. Look at the verb tense. You understand verb? You understand verb tense? We'll talk to our teenagers, they'll teach us all, okay? He, what's the verb? Is. What tense is that verb? Present. You know what that means? It means is. If it was past tense, it would say he was. Paul writes this after Christ has lived and been crucified and been buried. Right? He could have said he was. But he can't say he was because he wasn't was, he always is. Right? He isn't was, he is. Right? Stay with me. He is. Why is he and not was he, the image? Because he, just like he died and was buried, he resurrected and he lives forever. Now who is he? Who is that baby? 
He is the embodiment of the invisible God. He's not was. He is. And you know the implication of that on your life today? We don't serve a dead, used-to-be baby in a manger. We serve a living God whose name is Jesus Christ. Okay, here's the last thing I wanted you to see from this. The word, image. It's one of those words that English couldn't think of a better way to say it. So we just pulled it over. The Greek word is icon. Now, we have, in our society these days, we're big on apps. You know, there's an app for that. But even the app is triggered by hitting an icon. Right? Hello? The little picture? It's not an app. It's a picture. It's an icon. It's the same word that we have here, the image, the embodiment of the invisible God. Jesus was the icon, and just like when you hit that icon and your app comes up and you can do incredible things with that computer because of it, Jesus Christ is the gateway to incredible life for us. The icon that leads to life because he is the image of the invisible God. But you see, here's the problem with all of this that I'm talking about today. For us to look at it presents us with a dilemma. It is a choice. If I hold that he is in fact the image of the invisible God, that means that I allow him to make demands on me. Oh, but you see, we like our little personal Jesus the other way around. It's a lot better to have a little baby in a manger because you can tell a baby what to do. But if he's the image of the invisible God, as Paul says that he is, and by the way, he is, then you see, he gets to make demands of us. So this baby, as we go through the next few weeks, we're going to look a little more at what Paul says about this baby. But let me just throw this one at you. One of my favorite preachers in all of the world these days is a guy by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. And he has a song called This Baby. I want you to listen to the practical element here. Well, he cried when he was hungry. He did all things that babies do. He rocked and he napped on his mother's lap and he wiggled and giggled and cooed. There were the cheers when he took his first step and the tears when he got his first teeth. Almost everything about this little baby seemed as natural as it could be. Second stanza. And this baby grew into a young boy who learned to read and write and wrestle with dad. There was the climbing of trees and the scraping of knees and all the fun that a boy is born to have. He grew taller and some things started changing like his complexion and the sound of his voice. There was work to be done as a carpenter's son. And all the neighbors said, he's such a fine boy. Listen to how Stephen Curtis Chapman captures this baby, the chorus. But this boy made the angels sing. And this boy made a new star shine in the sky. This boy had come to change the world. This boy was God's own son. And this boy was like no other one. This boy was God with us. And this boy became a man. 
And that man died on a tree so that you could have life. Don't make him stay a baby in a manger because he's much more than that. Oh, yeah, he's a baby in a manger at Christmas time. Let's make sure we get a full grasp of what that means. But Christmas is not the end of the story. Praise God for that. And he says to you, come to me, all who are tired and worn out by living, and I'll give you rest and life that will blow your mind. I think God says, for that sin problem you got, I got an app for that. Let's pray. As we come to this time of prayer, as I said earlier, the truth of this passage leaves us with a choice. What will you do with this baby? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I don't want to try to talk you into anything. I'll just lay it out there and say to you, you're missing what life is all about. And I invite you to life today. And in a moment when we start our invitation, I invite you to just walk forward and we'll talk to you, pray with you, and introduce you to Jesus Christ, not the baby in the manger, even though he is that, but the king of the universe, God himself who says, I love you and I have a plan for your life. Father, we ask you to take this time, work in our hearts, bring us back out of the fog of the Christmas craze, bring us back to the ultimate truth that you loved us enough that you sent your son, became man for us. Father, help that make a deep impression on us. In Jesus' name.